Today, we are talking to Ben Johnson, the CTO of Obsidian Security, and we discuss the Equifax and Target data breach, the art of picking a co-founder, and how Ben sells the company's vision as the CTO. All of this right here, right now on the Modern CTO Podcast. Here we go. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. How you doing, man? It's early. Where are you at? Yeah, it's it's great. We're in uh, Southern California, Newport Beach, and uh, it's yeah, it's nine oh two. I've been checking you out, reading your writing, dude. You're a you're brilliant. You you write like a beast. Well, thanks. I I don't know if I'd go that far, but uh, yeah, it's <laughs> uh, it's it's trying to produce a lot of content, get a lot of ideas out there, and and hopefully get some good feedback. I I really like the branding. I like your your writing and your style super knowledgeable and honestly i don't have that many security conversations so i was i'm i'm extra pumped about talking with you awesome yeah it sounds great i'm curious any I, i'm sure like the big breach that the, the average consumer knows or at least that i'm aware of most recently is the equifax breach yep did you pay attention to that yeah i mean uh you know it's it's hard to keep up these days but <laughs> um yeah there's a lot of uh a lot of uh activity a lot of writing a lot of reporting around that so yeah i can i can talk to that if, if we want to get into it yeah because i don't know what happened but here's what i do know i wrote some software for the largest law firm on earth and they're actually handling the lawsuit and they're using the software and the equifax lawsuits the first lawsuit that they're using it with so i'm like oh sweet I was just curious about, I was like, what are they going to be doing on there? <laughs> yeah. Yep. So what happened? So uh, really, uh, you know, what, what happened is the uh, open source project called Apache Struts had a vulnerability. And with most organizations, it's, it's really hard to keep up with what you've deployed and, and what you're using either in software or hardware. And so um, they really just didn't get ahead of the patching cycle. And so this vulnerable piece of software was internet facing. Uh, the attackers were able to get in. And there's lots of details and, and probably this whole episode could be about it and that, that might bore people. But, um, you know, uh, you know, people, uh, the, the adversaries got in and then there were other instances where there were default admin passwords and things like that. And really it was just kind of a mess uh, internally uh, in terms of like once they got in, there wasn't a whole lot of that defense in depth type of methodology, like, you know, just a lot of outdated systems or systems that weren't um, functioning properly and that kind of thing from a security perspective. And then it's pretty quick to get to the databases, right? And uh, one thing we always talk about in the security community is anything that makes the lives easier of the IT team also makes the lives easier of the attackers, right? Ooh. And if, you know, most people probably remember the target breach uh, from a few years back, but basically what happened there is once the adversaries got in, they actually used the, you know, system management software, the, so the, the, the system to push software to all the point of sale systems to actually push their malware to all the point of sale systems, which would then scrape memory for credit cards and then FTP it out, right? So they actually didn't use a whole lot of sophisticated tools. They just used your built-in tools for inventory, for software management, for, for that kind of thing. So um, yeah, anything that makes the IT team's lives easier also makes the, the attackers' lives easier. So are you, what are you doing at Obsidian? Are you playing Batman and like saving the world or? 
<laughs> I think some people think that. Um, we, uh, we, we're still pretty stealth, uh, so I'll be a little bit vague here. Uh, we've, okay, been, cool. we, we've been around since uh, really just the last spring. Uh, we went out and raised money from Greylock, so happy to you know kind of talk about fundraising or any of that stuff. Um, but really, uh, we came together and we wanted to build another enterprise security product. So Glenn and Matt uh, came from Silance, which is an enterprise uh, endpoint security company, you know, so they build uh, essentially next generation antivirus software. I came from Carbon Black, which is also uh, next generation antivirus providers. We're actually competitors. Uh, and we said, you know what, we focused on laptops and desktops and, and providing this protection to defend against malware and, you know, ransomware and things like that. We want to do something different. So we're taking a little bit different look at how companies are using maybe some cloud-based systems, maybe still some on-premise systems, uh, and ultimately trying to detect suspicious activity, right? I mean, that's the key is can we detect when bad things are happening, either from an outsider or from an insider? And obviously, it's really hard when you see breaches in the headlines uh, every week. So is it safe to say that the goal of what you're doing at Obsidian is you're going to be detecting breaches, something like that around there? Yeah. I mean, it's once you start getting into the details, I mean, there's a thousand. Well, I don't even know the details. So like <laughs> if I could just say, OK, Obsidian, they're going to detect they're like going to they're going to pay attention to like what's happening in, in your network or your world. And they're going to be like, hey, bro, when you got an issue, is that like the gist of it? Sure. Yeah. I mean, cool. you know, ultimately the the teams need someone to say, hey, this looks bad. Go, go investigate. Right. You're going to, you're going to knock it out of the park. Look at this team. I'm looking at your team right now on your site. You guys got some talented, beautiful, amazing people. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I know it's been a, a topic on some of your podcasts around hiring and stuff, but um, yeah, I mean, we've, we've really tried to find great teammates and, you know, one of the really hard things that I tell people is when you start a company and you try to scale very quickly from the beginning, it's like a sports team. That's an expansion team, right? It's not like you're coming into an established culture or established team and we're hiring for a very specific skill. It's basically like we're bringing together all these players, basically from free agency that have never played together before and trying to build a, a good team. And then while the game is going on, figure out if we need more of a particular skill set or whatever. So it's actually quite a challenge to, to try to figure out what we have to hire for. Uh, and so ultimately we come back to uh, versatility, uh, the right uh, mentality, you know, like passion. And, and are they really excited about this? Do they really want to work here? Or are they just looking for a job kind of thing? Um, but yeah, I mean, we've, we've been very fortunate and we're continuing to grow. We're, we're hiring like crazy. Yeah. I'm, I read your article about, you know, hire for passion, train for skill, coach for performance. And I was like, man, we're, I'm going to get along with Ben. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's all about that. Right. And I mean, those are very subjective measures. So um, it, it is a little bit vague when, when we talk about that. And we are thinking about ways of doing a more objective, you know, test for, for coding or for other things. But a lot of times it's, you know, is this person going to be great to work with? Are they going to fit into the team? Are they going to roll up their sleeves when they need to or step back when they need to? Um, have they shown capacity before, right? Have they shown that they can do very interesting things? Even if it's in a different, you know, programming language or using different technologies, um, it's still not easy, right? I mean, it's a lot of kind of gut uh, going, you know, in terms of the hiring process. But but yeah, it's it's all about finding the good people, right? If we find great people, then then we should have no problem. And then you fire quickly, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Good. I, I used to be shy, like at the very beginning of my career with, with 
letting people go. Cause you know, like within the first week or two, you know, and then you just wait seven months to fire them. Yeah. I mean, we've been, we've been really lucky here, but your, your point is valid. Like, I mean, people need to, to adopt the right mindset and, you know, we hired people so quickly that we didn't even have requirements, right? Like we're still trying to figure out exactly what product market fit is and what, what our feature set is and things like that, even to this day. Right. And, and cause we're, we're early and we're building an enterprise product, which means just a lot of discovery and exploration. And so, you know, we can start building different components and writing different code and things like that. But ultimately people need to know that, Hey, like we might adjust course a little bit. We're not going to completely shift over and do a consumer product or something, but you know, we, we, we need a little bit of vagueness still because we don't want to build something that isn't the right thing. Do you know, uh, Elias Torres, do you know him? He's over, he's a CTO over at drift. Uh, no, I don't. So he, he was in charge and ran with, um, HubSpot and grew their engineering and then him and his partner went over and started Drift. They're like, I think, Intercom's biggest competitor. Uh, really smart. So I, I was hanging out with him last night at a talk in Tampa. And he was he was talking about exactly, you guys have the same views on building great teams. And when I was hearing that, and then when I was reading your content, I was like, oh, these guys would be friends. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of this stems from the intelligence community. So I uh, spent a lot of time in the intelligence community, um, you know, and, and that just led to tons of growth because you couldn't Google, like you couldn't search for some of the things that you're working on. And even if you could, there would be zero hits. Right. And so right. Um, you had to learn how to how to how to adapt and how to be versatile and, and, and sort of investigate and, and be creative. Uh, but along those lines. We built a team from basically zero to 140 people, one of the best teams in my, you know, my humble biased opinion, though, uh, <laughs> in the intelligence community to about 140 people almost exclusively through referrals. So we were referring people that we knew would thrive in the environment and we were putting our necks out, right? We were saying, look, I'm referring someone and if they don't do a good job, it's going to look bad on me. So, you know, I, I thought that built a really good team. And then we tried to do that at Carbon Black as well, which is, you know, refer as much as we could, because it's so much better to know what someone's going to be like when you've worked with them for a year or multiple years versus like a few hours in an interview. Right. So we're still trying to adopt that mindset of, Hey, can we refer people uh, and continue to grow the team this way? So how much interaction did you have with the, you're a co-founder there, correct? Yep. And you said you co-founded it with a previous competitor, right? Yep. So how much how much relationship building interaction did you guys have before deciding to to do this? Were you friends at conferences? Like how did this all how did it go down? Yeah, so there was a lot of serendipity. Um, but yeah, so we had actually discussed uh, partnering several years ago. I think it was 2012 or 2013 because our products weren't really competitive yet. And so we actually spent a decent amount of time uh, getting to know each other, hanging out, jumping on some calls, meeting in person, uh, and we really had a good rapport. Um, and then we just happened to start to compete. And so that kind of died, but we stayed in touch, right? And security, like a lot of different fields, but security has a ton of conferences and you kind of have to go to all of them. Um, and so we would run into each other and, and still grab a beer or hang out, have a good discussion. And even though there's competition, you know, there's a lot of respect. Like we all, I think at the end of the day, know who the actual kind of bad guy is, right? Like even if you have competition, especially in security, like there's an actual adversary trying to do your customers harm. Right. And we're basically cyber, you know, weapons suppliers or, you know, defense suppliers. So, right. you know, there's still that notion of there's an actual like, you know, criminal criminal syndicate or, you know, foreign intelligence service or whatever trying to do harm. And so you, you still can rally together, even if you're trying to win market share. 
Um, so anyways, long story short, I decided to, you know, explore and, and go do something different. And I called a buddy and he happened to be sitting next to Glenn <laughs> having coffee with him. And Glenn was thinking about leaving uh, at the same time. And so from there, we said, oh, man, let's do something. And, and I was looking to move somewhere warmer. I was living in Chicago and, you know, loved it. But me and my family were just like, let's go somewhere warmer. Glenn was in Newport Beach. Can't get much nicer than here. It was 84 degrees this weekend. Um, and so, you know, it all just sort of continued on from there. But the whole point was, you know, that that long term maintenance of a relationship and maintaining the relationship. Um, and then you never know, you know, where it's going to lead. And, and in this case, it led to something cool. Do you have a big family? I got three boys, three kids and, a, and an awesome wife. Was yeah, I have an awesome wife too. Was it and a, and a little girl? But keep your boys away from my girl. <laughs> uh, how old are they? Uh, seven, five, and two. Oh, okay, mine's only four months. I'm oh, new. I just got into the game. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, just wait till they start getting mobile and uh, chasing oh. after them and stuff. But uh, it's a blast. You know, yes, uh, two days ago, the first time that like my wife's holding her and we're standing in the kitchen and she reached both her hands out to me, like for me to hold her for the first uh -huh. time. And I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> this is the yeah. best thing in in the world. Yeah. Uh, so I just like to talk about it a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's great. It, it kind of adds motivation at work too. Cause you kind of, you know, you, you can think about what are you doing this for, right? I have never been more motivated in my business pursuits then like when I wake up and I see that smile and I'm like, I'm going out into the world and I'm attacking the world today for that little monkey, you know, yeah. like for yep. those little smiles. And was it hard to convince the family to move or were they like, nope, we want the warmth. Let's go. Yeah, it, was, it wasn't really hard. Um, yeah. You know, I was like, hey, uh, do you need to come visit before I commit to this? And she's like, nope. I, I know the weather. I, it looks great. Um, you know, it's it, like anything, it's an adjustment, you know, cross country move and, and yeah. know, get a new house and all that stuff. But uh, overall, it's been great. I mean, you know, we were in the pool on Thanksgiving Day, right? It's, oh, yeah. it's just a, it's a different world. Well, I'm, I'm a, I live in Florida, Sarasota, Florida. So we have like one of the top beaches in the world, which once we got listed as that kind of ruined it because now it's tourist central. But uh, so I'm very familiar with 80 degree Christmases and basically no winter. <laughs> yep. Yep. So are your boys showing, uh, my dad would take me to work with him and that's how I got into programming when I was eight ish. And, uh, are your, are your boys showing any interest in the, in, in what you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, actually at their, their elementary school, they're doing a whole bunch of, um, you know, sort of like maker space and, and some code and some robotics. So, uh, just through that, they're starting to, to get exposure. We've also done some coding at home. You know, it's, it's kind of cool. It's like blocks and stuff where you, you start to learn about for loops and, and, and other yeah. things. Um, I've also just been, aside from the programming and the technical side, I've just been a huge entrepreneurship, you know, fan. And, and I was even teaching entrepreneurship for a couple of years. So uh, my oldest started doing pitches where he would get up and he would whiteboard and say, hey, yes. this is my, my idea and stuff. So I'm hoping that we can continue to cultivate that. But but yeah, it's been great. And, and you know, they enjoy it. And, and honestly, uh, the last few years before Obsidian, I was really traveling the world. So they didn't really get to to experience as much, whereas here they can come to the office and I'm around a lot more. So, um, you know, I think they're, they're starting to understand a little bit more around Obsidian. And strangely enough, me and Glenn and Matt, the three co-founders, we all live in the same neighborhood. So they might even oh, nice. see, see Glenn or Matt or see their children uh, just out at the park or, or stuff like that. I still to this day remember running around my dad's office, getting my static electricity up with my socks and then going and like shocking, shocking my siblings and stuff. And then the smell of electronics. Yeah. Oh, because they were doing, you know, physical devices. And so you'd smell the solder and it would be just like, 
to this day when I smell like solder and like baked electronics, I'm like, yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> they were they were retrofitting. They invented this thing that went inside golf carts that mapped the golf course, and the, the, there were these screens. And this was in in the mid mid to late 90s, right? So having a TFT screen like that was like a big deal and such a small, and and they would have to ship them into different countries and ship them across the United States. And there was heat problems. So uh, my dad was one of the original, like I think he was like the fourth hire of what was like a 300 person public company. So I remember him and the people, they would be baking the units that would go inside these golf carts, baking them in the oven in the house, like in the garage and like wow. just the smell of bake. Cause they were, they were having issues when they'd ship them away, they would be melting and, and malfunctioning cause of overheating. So then they had to start heat testing them. And so like growing up, like that's like a strong memory. You, yeah. um, you, you buy them any of the raspberry pie, Adrenos, anything like that? Uh, not yet. I mean, you know, we actually got, um, I forget the name of it, but, um, I think it was, I don't know if it was Wozniak or, or one of the, one of the sort of giants in the, in the Valley. Um, there's these computer kits where you kind of build a computer, uh, from scratch. Uh, you know, they give you a bunch of components of battery and a bunch of wires and chips and stuff, even like the case. So we started doing some of that stuff. Um, and we'll get into it more, but you know, a lot of it's around trying to, to keep them active and not just asking for, you know, games on the iPad or something. Right. So right. It's, <laughs> you want to encourage some types of screen time. Uh, but a lot of it's a challenge too, because you know, there's a lot of screen time these days. I'm taking notes, Ben, cause I've, I'm, she's only at four months. So I've got a lot, I got a lot coming up. I'm taking Ben notes, Ben parenting notes. All right. That's just a segment for me. Right. That's something I need. We, we actually had this guy on the show named Mike Anderson. Um, he does embedded systems and he puts satellites into space and they're like crazy. Have you heard of that guy? His name sounds familiar, but it also sounds like maybe it's a common name. So, so I'm not doesn't sure. it? Yeah. Doesn't it? You know what made me interested? I didn't even tell him this on the show. Uh, but what made me interested when I saw his name come up is I used to use that as like my pre-fill form, like in my earlier web apps of like the faked data that would go into the form, like for my test. And yeah. like, for some reason, I just always picked the name Mike Anderson. I don't know <laughs> if it was in like the library of seed data or whatever. But when I saw Mike Anderson across, I'm like, yes. And then I looked up who he was and I'm like, they're doing this thing right now, Ben, where they're designing the first like mid-orbit satellite refueling thing that they're that's like never been done before. Oh wow! And so we were talking to him about how they, because he he like is at NASA's launch pad, like he's like the guy. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And uh, so we were talking to how they do it. They do a digital model, like 3D rendering, you know, simulations of actually doing the refueling before, because you only get like one shot, and it's like like million multiple millions of dollars for this one shot to do it right you know and uh they do the digital models then they do a small scale model that's physical and then they actually go to nasa's hangar and they have a physical replica of the full size model wow to execute all the the coordination that has to happen in this this satellite refueling process he goes he goes you're off by like a seventh of a degree and you've got space debris and you're, de- you're violating international treaties and it's like it, then you lose millions of dollars i'm like whoa it was a that call is coming out in like next in the next week or so but man that's a that's a high energy call yeah. And, you know, uh, I mean, that, that all sounds amazing. It also makes me appreciate building software. So it's so much easier to test, right? It's still still got its challenges, but uh, I'm not worried about explosions in space. Right. Like when he was saying that, I'm like, oh, man, I get I freak out when I get a downtime notice from CloudFront for like <laughs> 10 minutes or something, or I get upset at Netflix, like not being able to stream for a second. And then this guy's putting stuff into space, like on the first try doing crazy things. So, yep. Uh, 
I was I was listening last night to Elias, and he was talking about uh, the startup and how they're growing from 200 people to 110 over at Drift. And one of the topics he brought up that was important to him and that was unique to me, uh, he said the concept of a lot of the CTO founders of SaaS products, or they, they think that they don't need salespeople, that they just need to build a great product and things will come. And so he he was talking, part of his talk was this thing called the, the no salespeople myth. And he was showing at us all these SaaS products and all these products where you would think that there's no salespeople and they have these massive sales organizations behind them. What do you think about that? I think that's the dream is, is, is very cheap uh, spending or very, let's say, um, economical spending on the go-to-market side so that you continue to fund uh, innovation and engineering. Uh, but in reality, especially if you're focused on enterprise, like there's, there's a lot of face-to-face, right? And so um, I think the challenge is how do you build out a sales team? How do you leverage or utilize the efficiencies of SaaS and maybe the easier deployment Basically, no, you know, no shipping hardware to the customer or things like that, um, but still have enough of a field presence or enough of a sales team and marketing team to, you know, to to get those deals and and to, you know, show enough customer support to make your customers really understand that you are there for them, right? Like, and so, you know, one of the things that that I did in the last three years, I was essentially the field facing CTO at Carbon Black. I did 500,000 miles, you know, all over the world. And it was basically because of that face-to-face uh, necessity, right? You need to be able to talk to the customer, make them understand that you're there for them. And even if it's a SaaS product, especially if you're selling enterprise, I mean, these deals are often six figures, maybe even seven figures, right? Mm-hmm. And so there's just a lot of process that goes with it. And I think the dream is you just put up a website and people sign in and, and put their credit card or whatever. But in reality, again, it's it's helping them through a nice uh, you know, proof of concept or proof of value phase and just understanding how it's going to really integrate with some of their existing systems. So, yeah, I, I think I think it is a myth that you have no salespeople. Uh, but I also think that a lot of the, especially in security, a lot of the spending has been, hey, let's just hire as many salespeople as possible and flood the market and, and try to do a massive land grab. And it just gets so expensive, right? And it's just so hard to, to you know, have all these people trying to sell all these you know, products. Um, and really there's only a finite budget that, that they're all competing for and they're all expensive and stuff. So yeah, somewhere in the middle, right. You need some sales. I get that balance. Yeah. But I'm so. just hoping that like, a, I hope I know right now, like what the composition of our audience is. And I know that there's a co-founder developer CTO person right now. That's just him and his partner, um, or her and her partner. And what they're doing is they're building this app and they want to go get funding or whatever it is. And cause I get these emails from them. Right. And so one of the conversations I wanted to just recurringly bring up is like, if you aren't the salesy person in the mix of the co-founder relationship, like get a third co-founder that's the salesy person. Like don't be just just the engineers that can't be client facing, like get out there into the world and develop in-person relationships because that's what drives the business. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I couldn't agree more, you know, as a, as a co-founder or founder um, or just very early stage, you know, employee, uh, you're often looked at to help sell the vision of the company, right? Especially if you don't have a brand that people know yet, like they want to talk to the founder or they want to talk to the CEO or the CTO. um, And you're going to have to be outgoing. Even if you have to fake it, you're going to have to be outgoing. You're going to have to pitch your vision, but you're also selling all the time. You're not just selling to the customer. You're trying to recruit talent. 
and you have to sell them on the vision. You have to keep people happy, right? So there's there's a lot to it that that forces you to be more uh, outgoing. And I agree, like if you if that's just really not you, you need to bring in another person. But um, if that person isn't really there from the beginning, they're not going to sell the vision as well as the people that you know ruminated and and sat there and thought about it and and sort of you know kind of. Earn, as we say, earn their scars early on um, and learn those lessons from early customer discussions. So you really need to be able to have those uh, lessons learned or that you know passion that comes through you when you're talking to those first five or 10 customers. And a lot of the listeners might know this, but the first five or 10 customers, especially on the enterprise side, you know, consumers are a little bit different. Um, those are all going to be closed by the CEO or the CTO. Right. So you're probably not even going to have a salesperson at that time. So you're going to have to go out and say, hey, I know we're really early, but take a shot with us. Right. So, yeah, to your point, 100 percent agree. You have to be comfortable speaking and selling the vision. Oh, yeah. And so now I'm really curious. So you're in stealth mode right now, building the most amazing thing. Right. And (laughs) and and you say and do like all the right things. So I really you get you have this very. um obvious value to me right now. I can't wait for this question. You're in stealth mode. How are you like, what are you looking at when you're, when you're going to be bringing on a sales team? Like, how how do you know that's right? What are you paying attention to? Like, what's your thought process of how do you go from stealth mode to not stealth mode? Yeah. Um, so, uh, so great question. So a lot of it's around, uh, finding the people that are still going to thrive without enough resources, right? So even when we are more public with what we're doing and we're actually hiring full-time salespeople, um, there's always gonna be too much work to do and we're not gonna have all the support structure and you know people helping out and, and doing all these different things, right? Because especially on the enterprise side, once you build up a sales team, you sort of slice it up in different ways and different sizes and you have people helping on, on channel and partnerships and stuff. So early people need to come in and really have that, that grit or that hunger and be like, you know what, I can do whatever. I can roll up my sleeves and be, very tactical. I can think more strategically. I can work those relationships. I can understand the product. I can help sell the vision. So a lot of it's around finding a few people that we think can really help us get some early good customers. Um, And they're going to come in with relationships, but more importantly, they're going to come in willing to uh, not just have a script, right? Like we're not at a stage where we're going to hand new salespeople the script and say, this is how you pitch us. And this is all the, the answers to the questions. They have to be a lot more versatile, kind of like our early engineers, right? So um, it's it's more around getting just a few people and and starting to slow roll it a little bit, because even when you come out of stealth, you don't fully know how your go-to-market side, right? Like maybe your product is a little bit more solidified, but your go-to-market side is still going to be very iterative. So um, I think, you know, I I know I'm overusing the word, but I think that term, you know, versatility or or being able to adapt, certainly being hungry, not coming in expecting they're going to have a huge team or something like that. um, That's what we're going to look for. Um, And then combine that with, hey, you're still going to probably be partnered up with myself or Glenn or some of the other early employees, because we're still going to have to help sell the vision. Uh, we're still not going to have the, the trust yet because we're so early, right? Even if we have a good historical uh, track record, we still need to build up that trust in our brand and get those reference customers and that kind of thing. So a lot of it's around, hey, who, who do we think is going to really, you know, work very hard and, and be adaptable and just kind of go all out to make us successful? You know what, this is something that I'm noticing coming up a lot because 
what you said really triggered something. You said it's not just like we have salespeople, we give them a script. We have to have people that like understand the struggle. Like the struggle is real, right? They understand what the problems are. They feel them. They understand that the solution, they're proud to be a part of the company that's creating the change. And then they are genuinely passionate about the fact that they're working towards this, the production of, of this solution, right? And, and so often people will look at it exactly how you said at the beginning as, oh, let's just get a sales script, let's get a funnel and let's grab a bunch of people and let's just pound the phone, like, and let's just drive the pipeline. And I'm, I'm seeing that like this other thing is coming up. I think this is going to be talked about a lot more. I don't hear a lot of people talking about this in their writing or in their books or in their talks, but I hear a lot of people talking about it like right now when I'm talking to you. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's that entrepreneurial spirit more from the sales and marketing side than the, you know, engineering side. And, you know, how can we approach the problem of providing our value to people that need it uh, and try different things and not try so many things that we burn tons of cash, but, you know, being able to, to adjust and, and, and move forward as necessary. So yeah, I mean, uh, I agree. I think it's an, actually an interesting topic. I don't think a lot of people know. And um, to, to something I said earlier, like, I don't think, especially on the technical side, that, uh, you know, computer science students or first-time entrepreneurs understand how much you have to learn how to sell. And you have to learn how to sell in the sense that, like I said before, you have to sell your vision or you have to sell, you know, people on uh, your your preferred way of building something or actually selling product, right? Or selling, you know, different different ideas. So this notion of selling, everyone thinks about is money, but it's really around how do you get people behind you? How do you convince people that like, this is the way forward? And, and whether that's with buying your product or joining your team or whatever. So I think continuing to uh, expose that as a topic that maybe needs more conversation and writing uh, is a great thing. And hopefully through your podcast, you know, that, that's one of those ways we can do that. Absolutely. Communicating value is just, it's critical to every part of your life, whether it's business or your relationships. I mean, everything's kind of, you know, it's interesting. So I'm only 30, right? But I feel like a lot of my mind has been changing and maybe also having the kid, but I'm starting to see things differently. And it's, one of the things that started to blend is this concept of value. It's been really hitting me hard lately where like, it's almost like energy, um, in like a very like physics sense where you have it and then it needs to be transferred, right? So currency is one way to transfer the value. It's so like I provide you value and then we can figure out how to translate that to currency. And sometimes companies do deals where they exchange value and there's no currency involved, right? But there's a lot of value involved. And so, and then, and then I'm taking that same concept and I'm seeing like apply it like with my relationships of any type of relationship, whether it's business or my personal. And it's just this, this whole thing like just came up to me about value in life over the past year. And it's just, I find it fascinating. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think to put it slightly different way and, and I completely agree. A lot of times we look at a transaction as the result or as the goal. Um, and so whether that's fundraising or selling product, but really that's when the work starts. So for example, you raise a bunch of money, you get your, your seed series, a series B, whatever, that's actually when the work starts or that's when the work accelerates. Right. And so, yeah, we have these pictures of entrepreneurs and, and you, you pitch in and, and getting beaten up and going into shark tanks and things like that um, and thinking how hard that is. But really, that's 
like once the check hits, that's when the real work begins. Um, and similarly, when we're selling product or, or to your point, providing value to a customer, like once you get them to buy your product, that's really when their work starts, right? They have to use the product. They have to train on it. They have to give it care and feeding, whatever it is. Um, and so a lot of times I see entrepreneurs or salespeople forget that there's so many different aspects of value or of friction like on the flip side, right? So like all the meetings, all the time, all the emails, like all of that costs something, right? Maybe you can't put a dollar amount on it, but it all costs something. So I think just having a better understanding of, of value and cost would help us all out. I see that you had some of your work published in some different magazines like SC Magazine. Yep. How does that, so how, how does that go about? Do they contact you? Do you contact them? Like how do you get your articles in magazines? A lot of it's, so it's, it's, it's a combination, as you might expect. So a lot of it's networking and, and getting to know people as your personal brand or your company brand starts to improve. Your friction around convincing people to accept your articles goes down. Um, you might even be solicited to write something. Uh, a lot of times you might have a PR firm help you, uh, you know, push out your, your content or, or other marketing individuals push out your, your content. So it truly is a team effort, but a lot of it is writing something that's interesting and something that the editors think people want to hear about, right? So, you know, I encourage anyone that's trying to get articles on, especially online, like it's, it's, it's pretty low friction, right? At least to like write up something and send it to people, um, but put some effort into it. And if you have interesting ideas, you know, these sites are always looking for contributors, you know, even places like TechCrunch or some of the more uh, popular, you know, general uh, tech sites, um, they're always looking for contributions. So, you know, take a shot, like write something that's interesting that you think, you know, really would help other, you know, technologists, entrepreneurs, security people, whatever. And then, you know, start, start pushing that out and getting, getting that rhythm of, you know what, I'm going to get better as a writer by writing every week or recording a, you know, video cast or podcast or, or whatever. I have a book. And when I was going through this whole process, my very first time, and I really, one of the things that I kept in front of my focus at all times was like, I don't want to cover topics that are very well covered everywhere else. I want to, I, I need to pay, pay attention to like the things that are happening, but that people aren't really talking about and then talk about those rather than just regurgitate the same thing over and over and over. Yep. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's, you know, I, so I used to host these dinners. I would fly all around the country and they were great. I would go in, I would say, look, we actually called them no sales, just security. And it was me and like, 10 to 15, it could be, you know, chief security officers, directors of security, CIOs, whatever. Um, and we would just start the discussion with, hey, what's working? Let's share what's working, right? And it was very yeah. open discussion. But out of that, people would learn so much because it's it's just just sharing what's working or what's not is great. And we don't do that enough. And that's, it doesn't have to be security. It could be in how you hire, how you build, like what kinds of programming languages are you having success with? Like whatever it is, there's so much information to share and people are craving ways to, to accelerate their own career or their own company or whatever. And if they can take your lessons learned that took you maybe months and they read it for an hour and it accelerated them, you know, months ahead, or, or at least gave them that understanding. I mean, everyone wants that. So um, we got to just continue to share and, and, you know, collectively work together and it just helps us all out. Well, it also means so much more. Like I could sit here and take team leadership advice from like a figure, like a Gary V or like whatever business figure you would want. But if I'm in security and man, Ben Johnson's going to talk about putting together a team. Like it just, there's, you're going to put those little tidbits in there that are specifically related to your industry. And like, it's just going to mean so much more. 
Yeah. And, and just being, just being open and honest, right? Like, you know, you go in and you, you have a discussion with a team, especially if you're a vendor, like you're always going to be looked at a little bit with, Hey, is this guy selling me? Is he really telling me the truth or just trying to get me to buy his product? So if you really try mm -hmm. to break through that and just have some honest discussions and say, look, I'm not even here to talk about my product or, you know, I'm, very willing to tell you when you mention something that we don't do well or whatever. It just creates those bonds. And then, you know, spending time keeping up those relationships and, and networking and spending a little bit of extra time after the conference to, to hang out with people and get to know them and hear their problems. I mean, that's where all this comes from. And you just, you get so much personal growth through that. That that's what happened with the podcast. Like when we when I was writing the book, I was engaging all these CTOs and then I'm like, all right, well, we have the book done, but I didn't want the conversations to stop. I'm like, all right, so now we need to find an excuse to like, you know, keep these conversations going. Let's do the podcast. And I found that like talking to smart technology people about interesting things is what I'm doing with my life. Like it's, we don't make money on the podcast. We don't have advertisers. We intentionally won't ever have advertisers because I just don't want to. I kind of want it always to be like a, a, a value space where we kind of bring up the next generation of CTOs and then share with each other. Um, but that's, I kind of, I just, advertisers ruin everything. And I want to kind of keep this like, a clean space, you know? Yeah, I love it. Yeah. So uh, IoT security, I've been watching, I saw also this crazy video of these guys stealing some like Tesla type car um, by uh, tricking the key fob and somehow cloning it. And then it was very interesting. Uh, are we going to experience a like cyber crime wave in the next 10 years as things become more widely available, cheaper? And it's like that, or is the security team's, like so far ahead that we're not? You know, um, the tough thing, one of the tough things about security is telling people reality and not sounding like you're trying to sell something through FUD, right? Through fear. Because reality, reality is scary um, in terms of cybersecurity. Uh, things in some ways are getting a little bit better and in a lot of ways are not, right? And the adversaries, the cyber criminals or the nation states and their intelligence community efforts, they're having so much success that it just breeds, it's like a market. Like when you see people having success, like other competitors jump into that. And this just happens to be success in stealing records or Bitcoin or whatever, right? And so, so um, it's certainly not going away. You mentioned IoT. The challenge with Internet of Things or these embedded devices is that a lot of them are too small to really put security software on. And the manufacturers, it's really a race to the bottom in terms of cost, right? Like they want to sell something that's super cheap as like a little sensor, a little camera, whatever. And so if they have to spend extra time engineering better security controls or, you know, just having better, better security protection built in, that raises their manufacturing costs, right? And so um, it's, it's a huge challenge. And then the other thing is, if there is a security flaw and the vendor puts out a patch, it might be really hard to go patch your little you know, sensors and thermostats and stuff. So um, unfortunately, when you start talking about IoT, that's a pretty er that's an area that needs a lot more security help. And I don't know if you remember, but um, there was a big botnet that took control of, I, I don't remember the final numbers, but I think it was something like a million uh, surveillance cameras, video cameras. And then it was DDoSing, um, you know, DNS. And it took down AWS, it took down uh, Netflix, I think Twitter, right? And this was just because people wrote scripts that found all these cameras and stuff, exploited those, and then had those all, uh, you know, hit a DNS provider, and then it basically took out the whole East Coast. So um, we're going to continue to see things like that. And as 
devices become more critical to human life, like hospitals and cars and stuff, um, the government's going to have to add some regulation, but also the manufacturers are really going to have to take it serious because, you know, we, we can't afford not to. Here's what I see happening. Like I actually, I, I, I feel like I see this actually happening right now. Technology is moving so fast. Everybody wants to make so much money. VCs, private equities, just shelling out cash to everybody. IoT is hot. Everything's hot, 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 hot. And what you're going to get is you're going to get a bottleneck in the experience and the quality of people. And you're going to end up hiring less quality people to push product faster. And then you and I know software development, my friend, corners will get cut with less quality people who won't push back, who just want the job, they'll write, write the code and cut the corners. And then you'll, what you'll end up with is uh, like Swiss cheese in the world of like these holes that are everywhere. Yeah. And it's, and, and, and kind of to your point, it's not even necessarily that there's uh, security vulnerabilities. There could just be bugs because of yeah. that race and the bugs themselves could take down very important systems and, and things. So, yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's definitely an interesting space, and and as you said, a lot of investments funneling into that. So, you know, we we have to keep an eye on it, but also, you know, there isn't enough talent, and so how do we make sure, especially these critical systems are being engineered in the right way and stuff. And so, I don't know, that's going to be up for debate, I think, a lot over the next several years. All in all, I think now is a great time to start a security company. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's definitely going to like if. I would, I mean, it's obvious to me that it's on, the needs only going to grow like exponentially over the next five years, decade. Like it's, it's not, it's not a future thing. It's a, you had to get started 10 months ago and to really be in on this, this next wave of security that's going to happen. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, the whole digital transformation, like even these hundred year old, you know, conservative financial institutions that took a long time to kind of modernize are now all of a sudden jumping into the cloud. Like you, you talked about the IOT, you talked about, you know, users, there's no real firewall or perimeter anymore at, at, at enterprises or at, at companies. So yeah, I mean, it's a tough challenge. Like it's really hard for security teams that have a pretty stable surface area to defend that. And then when you start thinking like my whole surface area is elastic and it's, you know, one click and I copy all this data to a public S3 bucket or whatever, um, it's just really hard to defend all that. And on that point, um, it's, there's a huge talent shortage in security, like even worse than like in, in programming or software. Well, that's, what, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's, um, it's tough. Like how do you defend all this new surface area? without butts and seats, as we might say, right? So um, that's going to continue to be a challenge as well. I was reading this guy, he's a pretty smart security guy, um, reading his article about how he deals with like struggles he's having with staffing and security seats. And you might know him, his name's Ben Johnson. But he was <laughs> writing about this recently. <laughs> um, all right, so I want to know, um, let's hypothetical situation here, Ben. Uh, Elon Musk texts you. He's like, oh, I need to scare my Tesla. And, no, but he tests you, you come over um, and he's got a time machine. You're going to get to go back 10 years and uh, give yourself a piece of advice. What are you going to tell, what are you going to tell 10 years ago, Ben? Wow. Uh, starting with the easy questions, aren't you? Starting start um, with the easy questions. Yeah. You know, I think, um, uh, wow. It's okay. <laughs> it's so iterative. Like learning is so iterative. It's hard to figure out like what I would, I think the whole, I uh, 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 think the whole, um, Hey, like entrepreneurship is so much fun and there's going to be so many opportunities and just, you know, continue to, to learn. But I think, I think overall, like, um, 
the earlier to an earlier point, and maybe this is a cop out, the earlier you can start to learn how to network and how to sell and some of the business side, especially if you came with a computer science background, like even if you go to a large company, like it's going to help. And so I, I think I would tell myself that. I think also just, you know, one thing I like to to tell students when I've gone back and, you know, talked to, to graduating students or whatever, is we put so much pressure on ourselves in like the first job out of college. Like, oh my God, this matters so much where I go. And really it doesn't. Like you're gonna, you know, what what do we say these these days? Like if you've been at a company for four or five years, you start to feel stale. Like that's sort of a, a trend right now. Yeah. Um, and so you're gonna work for maybe 10 different companies uh, over, you know, 30 or 40 years, maybe even more. And yeah, you wanna set yourself on a, on a positive, you know, good trajectory for your career, but like, it's very iterative and you can always go back and learn. You can always pivot. So um, I'm not sure that I, I, I have any huge like regrets or anything I would go back and tell myself, but I would just reinforce that like, you know, each move, make a smart move, but like anything can be changed. Like you can always pivot, you can always, you know, switch and, 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 and iterate. So I'm not sure I gave you a nice crisp answer, but I would, I would just go back and, and re reinforce that. No, I really like your, uh, pay attention to the business side of things earlier because, you know, I can imagine my 13 year old self sitting, you know, uh, writing code and not, not going out and being social because I enjoyed the code so much and not doing stuff. And then in hindsight, realizing, oh man, I could have spent that time developing some social skills rather than developing them in my mid twenties. Right. I could have built relationships of people that I've known for 10 years by the time I'm 21. Right. But I didn't do that. I had like one friend and like I wrote code all the time. So I, I had to kind of really learn that you have to go out and meet people like technology is there to serve people at the end of the day. And so yeah. it's, a, it's all about people. Yeah. And, and exactly on that point, whether you're trying to get up through the management track or whether you want to stay extremely technical, but if you do want to progress and be that, you know, tech lead or lead engineer or principal scientist or whatever, or you want to be, you know, C-level executive or director of something like to your, your final sentence there, it's all about people. And so just learning how people work, how to interact, how to, you know, how to get along, how to encourage and, 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 and coach all of those skills are super important. Awesome. Dude, Ben, this is like amazing call. I'm so, I'm so I'm so pumped to see where you're going to be in five years other than, you know, with the bat cape and all the, the car and like the Batman mobile and all that good stuff. <laughs> well, uh, well, let's hope. But yeah, I'm having fun and, and I really appreciate you having me on here. Thank you so much for listening to the Modern CTO podcast. Share this. Get the word out. Thank you guys so much. I couldn't do it without you. I appreciate it. You guys are the absolute best.